This is an ABC podcast. When Francesca Jordan was a little girl living in a small red brick bungalow in South Africa, she and her older sister would play with a toy telephone they had. And in their make-believe games, the two little girls wouldn't pretend they were arranging coffee dates or talking to boyfriends. In their games, they were trade union activists organising meetings, speaking to union officers and arguing with factory bosses about better rights for the workers. That's because these were the things that they saw their mum do. Their mother, Isabella Jordan, believed passionately in the rights of workers of all colours to be paid properly and to work in safety. And these were not easy rights to fight for in South Africa in the 1940s and 50s. Isabella lived a life of struggle, but also one of great courage and conviction. And Francesca has paid tribute to her mother in her memoir, Under the Boa Boa Tree. Hi, Francesca. Hello, Sarah. Tell me about these trees, the boa, boa. We've got a kind over in, in WA in the Kimberley. Yes, well, you have even the, quite a lot in Roma as well in Queensland. And there's one 30 metres from our front door, a little one. So, <laughs> what were the ones like in, in, in South Africa? In, in Africa, they're very, very big. They're called absolute giants. But there is one in South Africa that's 6,000 years old. The very big ones would be used as post offices and prisons <laughs> and, you know, bus shelters. What, so, the hollow in the, in, in yes, the trunk? Yes, yes. Yeah, because they're so hardy. Even, you know, the elephants, the elephants can chomp up the little ones, but the big ones, they, they do take the bark. But the boabab is so resilient that it just keeps going, keeps living. Well, in, in terms of the bark, there are tribes in, in South Africa that bathe their babies in, that's in right. bark that's been soaked in water from the boa right. trees. They do because they believe that it makes the baby strong, but also it's very nutritious. And so is the fruit of the boabab. There's a company in another part of Africa that makes a lot of products from the powdery, pulpy seeds inside the big pod. What about climbing, Francesca? Are they good trees for climbing well, or are they too big? not necessarily. The big ones are hard, but the little ones are. Like I could climb the little one at the bottom of my street. Your mother, Isabella, was born in, in South Africa. What were things like for her at home? Well, you know, I never knew she'd had such a hard time, but she left 40 pages of a memoir she started and never finished. And it was in there she wrote about how her mother treated her. So she was the only girl with three other boys. And her mum seemed to have something against girls. She got on it very well with her father. And I think there was some jealousy from her mother towards her because she got on so well with her father. He um, loved her very much and would stand up for her when her mother was really nag more than nagging. You know, really quite nasty, I think. It was a Jewish family. Yes. How important a role did religion play in, in well, the house? It, it was very important for my grandmother and grandfather. My grandmother was kosher and, you know, kept a, a kosher home. And my grandfather was a chazan, which is the singer of the Psalms. It's really the assistant to the rabbi in the synagogue. So they were very religious, orthodox religious 
The fact that your your mother was treated unfairly in comparison to her brothers, I wonder if that fueled her sensitivity to other kinds of injustice. I, I'm sure it did. I, I think you can go either way. You can either be, perpetuate abuse yourself or you can make a decision, as I have, not to perpetuate the abuse and to come and have the service gene, is the way I call it, and fight for others' rights. So she was growing up in this Orthodox Jewish home in South Africa and, mm. and I imagine being raised to be a housewife and, mm. uh, you know, listen to the authority yes. of the of the yes. man of the house. Yes. How did she first get exposed to radical politics and to activism? Well, uh, she met uh, Sally Sachs, who wrote the book Rebel's Daughters, and she was just so captured with his really spirit and fight and determination to improve the working conditions, particularly in the garment industry, which the conditions were horrendous. So this was in the 1940s, 1930s yes. in South yep. Africa. What yes. was the, the political situation then? It's, it's leading up to apartheid, but it it's was not leading apartheid up, yet. Yes, so the nationalist government came into power in 1948 and that's when apartheid came into full swing. But prior to that, the laws didn't really protect the workers and there were a lot of workers. So there was, a, after the Depression, after the Second World War, there was, the, there was a depression right throughout South Africa and a lot of the farmers' daughters came into the cities to work in the garment industry and they uh, would send money home but they realised how bad the conditions were. And so they joined with Solly Sachs. So how would your mum have encountered his ideas? Where would she have met Solly Sachs? Well, she went to a number of political meetings and just met him. And was she living at home still? She what? was still living at home, yes. I wonder what her mother made of, of well, that Well, she she's a rebel, you know. <laughs> I, call her, I call us the moral rebels, both <laughs> of us, because she when she saw injustice and she didn't remain silent. So if you're a moral rebel, you you won't remain silent when you see abuse or injustice. Another man that she met uh, as a young woman was Charles, who would go on yes. to become your father. That's Where did right. they first meet one another? Well, they met at a dance, at a Red Cross dance in South Africa. It was during, just as the war was coming more more or less to an end. And so he saw her. She was a great dancer, my mother. And in fact, she, when my grandfather had his cafe at the railway station, when he was away, she sometimes danced on the tables. She was such a, <laughs> she was really uh, very vivacious, full of life. What did she look like woman. as a young woman? Well, she, she was dark, very short, only five foot two inches. My father was six foot. So a bit of an unlikely pair in many ways. And I think she was more of a handsome woman, really, and lovely, long, wavy, black hair, very strong features and good-looking. So <laughs> when she met Charles at, at a dance, did he come from a, a similar world no, to her? so totally different. He came from an Afrikaans family, very Calvinistic uh, Dutch reform uh, church family. I don't know how on earth she she 
married him. I, you know, I question to this day how did she ever what marry did, a man like that? What did she like about him? What was she drawn to back I then? Think, I think it was really he was so in love with her and I think it was like this process of osmosis where when someone's so in love with you, you take on their love and you think it's your own. And she was also on the rebound because she was involved with another man who I believe, I don't know for sure, but I believe was a Jewish doctor. And then he went missing in the war. And also there's another story that he went back to Birmingham because his mother had got ill. The love of her life left, but she was to follow but stayed because her father was dying. And, and Charles time. comes into her life And Charles at that comes point. only six months after this all happened. Did he share her political commitment? Not at all. No, not at all. He didn't really understand the trade union work my mother was doing and the conditions in the factories, and he didn't understand the situations for the Africans and coloureds and Indians and apartheid. White people were more intelligent and he thought it was the as often was in with the Calvinistic Dutch Reformed Church that the people of darker skins were there to serve the lighter skinned people. So despite these big differences in their yes. worldviews and, and their backgrounds, they married and had your sister Corinne and, yes. and then you what do you remember of the atmosphere at home when you were young? Well it was I felt we were always like I was walking on eggshells. There was a lot, I became ultra, not just hypervigilant, but ultra hypervigilant because there was a lot of violence in the home and a lot of poverty because my father was drinking a lot and he wasn't bringing any money into the home. My mother was the one working and supporting all of us and then he was taking money and drinking. Was that violence directed towards all of you or, or yes, only your mother? Or? Yes, he, mainly my mum and he was actually more violent to my older sister, Corinne, and then to me as well. Were you frightened that he might kill your mum? Was it that bad? Yes, yes. There, there is, there is um, a description where the, there was a gun incident and it was very... It was very frightening and um, very traumatic to this day for me. Was there anyone that you could go to for help when that was happening? No, no. My sister did run at at one point to the neighbours when the gun incident happened. She ran to get help from them. And I think they did help at other times with the violence. And then in the My Saviour was our nanny. We had an African maid called Regina and she she was my saviour. Why? In what way? Because she was so loving and caring. And I've often said to my own clients, you need only one person in your life to have shown you love to get through some of this trauma. And she was the one. How would she show her love for you? Well, she was a fully bodied African woman with big hips and big thighs and and she would, you know, when my sister and I were crying, she would scoop us up in her arms and hold us to her breasts and chest and hug us and say, 
what's cooking here, girls? (laughs) (laughs) And she she was the one who just loved us, fed us. What what would she feed you? Well, you know, whatever food my mum was able to buy. But I loved eating because she had what's called a little kaya. It's a little house at the back of where we were living with where the, um, you know, the servants lived, the help lived. And um, she'd cook. It's a, it's called sadza. It's a white corn meal that you cook into a porridge. And then she'd make meat and onions and gravy. And you'd scoop up a ball of the sadza and make a little ball in your right hand, dip it in the gravy, you know, catch up a piece of meat and pop it in your mouth. So I loved eating it with her, both to get away from the violence and because her food was imbued with love and taste. Well, while you were being loved by by Regina and and I guess doing your best, the three of you, the, mm. the three girls in the family to survive, your, your father, your mum was taking more of a leadership role in this trade union movement, she particularly the, the garment workers yeah, union. The, yes. And was that mainly women employees then? It was. Yeah, it was mainly the women employed in the factories where the conditions were atrocious, not proper ventilation or lighting and very, like they initially only had three days off a year, then they were able to get annual leave. And and was that union open to all the races in South Africa? It was, yes, yes, all the races. And that Sully Sachs was particularly good at doing that, at bringing all the different races into the union. So what kind of actions was your mum involved in? Well, that? she was involved in organising strikes, organising meetings to get people into the union. So she'd have meetings outside of the factories and talk to the workers. And she also, there was, she worked for the newspaper, The Guardian, which was uh, against the, the, the government and, and also wanting better working conditions for all, all of this, all of the people living in in South Africa, and she would knock on the door and give them the newspaper, and then also find out whether they belonged to a trade union, whether they got maternity leave, whether they, you know, had arthritis because they didn't have, you know, weren't working with gloves or Wellington boots in the food industry factories. So she did a lot. And your mother's family were from Lithuania and there were a yes. lot of immigrants from Eastern Europe at That's that right. time. And yes. I guess there is that sort of tradition of trade unionism in, in There Eastern is Europe. because the first trade unionists in South Africa actually came from Eastern Europe, very strong, uh, militant, active trade unionists. You described her, Francesca, as a little petite person. Mm. What would she have been like knocking on people's doors or standing outside of factories? How do you ma- imagine her manner was? Well, she she had a she could be very charming. I remember it when I was at boarding school at in in Road in Bulawayo, One of the teachers said to me, "I can see where you get your charm now, Francesca," because <laughs> my mum had gone for an interview with her, and she was very charming, but yet very forceful. She wouldn't take no for an answer. You'd get short shift. She'd look you straight in the eye, and had a force about her. So force- and a great sense of humour as well, though. I think that that was really one of her saviours. So not a shouty, cheerless caricature no. of an activist, but an no. impassioned one. Yes, very much so. 
1951, your mum gave birth to a third baby girl. Yes. Tell me about your sister, Olga. What was realised once she was born? Yes, so just uh, straight after she was born, um, my mum was told that my little sister had Down syndrome, but very severe, very different to what the care nowadays she couldn't walk or talk and she had a lot of and what was conditions. the advice the medical advice back then well, about back, where a, a child with with down syndrome yeah, and other disabilities well, should live yeah in those days the doctors actually said that she would just go into an institution and many families never saw their child again typical of my mother she wasn't going to abandon her baby daughter and so she came home with us what kind of stigma did she face, the family face, in making that decision? Well, it was more... I remember there's one story my mum told where when she took my baby sister out in a pram and a person looked in the pram and she said, oh, what a shame, a Mongol. And I think people didn't know how to behave around her. I think people still sometimes don't know how to behave around people with disabilities. And what was it like for you and your sister having this baby sister? Well, I just loved her. You know, I loved her. Your father's drinking and violence were getting worse, though. What did your mother tell you one afternoon in 1954? Well, well, he was away visiting his parents on the farm. And she said, because there was an incident at the city hall where he heckled her. And so when she was up on stage talking to a, a you know, the whole hall full of, of people and she realised she had to get out of this marriage. And there was another beating when she got home after having been at the city hall and then she decided she had to leave this marriage. So he was away and I suppose this he must was have felt away. like a, a safe time to try to do yeah. that. What did she tell you and your well, sister? Well, she said, we have to leave. You know, Dad's away. He's on the farm. And she had a friend there to help her pack. And Regina helped me and my sister pack. What, what, did you, what do you remember packing? I was, could take very little. I took, um, I had dinky cars. I wasn't really a girly girl playing with dolls. My sister was. And I took a lovely red jumper I had with cross-stitch of flowers and a little blue dress and some books. I loved my Enon Blyton books. And what was it like, Francesca, saying goodbye to Regina, this woman who had been such a, a, a loving presence for you? It was the hardest thing. Uh, I still feel emotional about it because she gave me so much love. And I really believe that she was... Sometimes we don't realise what we give to others and I think she would never know, but I hope I acknowledge her. Where did your mother take you when you, you first escaped from the house on, yeah. on that day? So initially we went to live with other people and we had to keep moving because my father kept finding us. And I don't know how he did it, but he must have followed her from work or... But so we had to keep moving. We moved many times. And then one time we moved into a boarding house come motel and there were just three of us living in one room. And my mum had to go to work. It was a Saturday. And she left us, just the two of us in the room, and my father was banging on the door. What did he do? 
he just banged and shouted for us to open the door. And, and, and what did you and your sister do? Well, we, we, you know, we were used to hiding because often we would both hide under our beds when the violence was going on or I would go run out into the garden and hide up in the tree um, during the day. But at night I would hide under my bed. And so we looked at each other, just we didn't speak aloud. We just looked and nodded our heads. Let's get into the cupboard in the room. And that's what we did. And just stayed there very, very quietly until until he left. Politically, things were not safe for your mother either. No. Why were the security police after her? Well, because they were against apartheid and against better working conditions. And they were banning a lot of people and a lot of people were being brought in for questioning and imprisoned on the 90-day without trial, detention. There was a lot of torture. There was a lot of solitary confinement and imprisonment. And she, they d- didn't catch up with her for a long time until inadvertently one of the, when they read, rang the trade union, they gave her married name. They only knew of her under her maiden name. And then the hunt was on. And she, there was, you could get information kind of like the underground. And then her colleagues got train tickets for her and me and my sister. And my younger sister went into an institution until we moved to Bulawayo and then she came to live with us. So they got you train tickets. What do you remember of that day, Francesca, of of having, you've already left your family home and now you're having to leave your, your homeland? Yes. So we had very, you know, we'd left most of our meagre possessions. We only each had a suitcase. And I remember my mum saying, come on, girls, we have to leave. We have to hurry up. Dress in your warm clothes and bring your suitcase. And I remember dragging it along the platform. Had you ever been on a, on a long train journey before? No. That was the first time. And what was that like? Well, I love trains, surprisingly, <laughs> but it was our escape. So I do love the clattering song of trains and... And just the bunks and, yeah, there's lots of things I love about trains. Do you remember your mother? I mean, she must have been incredibly stressed and, and anxious. Were you aware as, as a little yes, girl? Yes, I was. was I was always aware. I was very conscious, even from the age of three, of my mother being in distress. And because there was an incident once after she'd been beaten where I tried to pick her up from the floor. And... Um, she she was very fraught and very um, I think exhausted too and distressed, but she held it together and got us out of there. And where was that train taking you to? It, it took us to Bulawayo. Where is Bulawayo? In, in it was in southern Rhodesia then, and now it's called Zimbabwe. And what are your memories of, of arriving or of, of this, new, this new home for you? What did it look like? Well, we, we, we managed to go and live in quite a nice sort of apartment, which, you know, we weren't used to. We'd lived in pretty grotty places. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a time of being more relaxed, not having the violence in the home and 
going to school. I went to the Baines Primary School and I, you know, I had, I was told I had a happy disposition. Um, yeah, it was, it was just suddenly more peaceful. And what was your mother doing for work? Was she continuing her political activities? Not really, not at that stage. No, she was just, she just took whatever job she could. She didn't have any particular qualifications as such. So she would work in all all sorts and different kinds of jobs. What do you remember? What sort of I work I remember did she do? her that she she managed some shops and she worked sometimes uh, doing secretarial work or bookkeeping. Yep. And you, after primary, were then at a boarding school with nuns, I believe. How yes. did you get on with them, Francesca? Well, I got on really well with the student nuns. I was very unusual. Two Jewish girls in a Dominican convent boarding school. Very unusual. But that's my life. You know, I'm always in the minorities or on the fringe somewhere. <laughs> and I, I quite liked boarding school because it was, there was routine. There was a lot of security in a way. Um, but I felt, yeah, I don't think the nuns always understood us, us Jewish girls, the two of us, although the student nuns loved me and I loved them when I was in high school. I, I got on very well with the student nuns. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Your mother, Francesca, was moving about a bit with work to various parts of, of Southern Africa, not back mm. to South Africa, but other, other countries. And you and your sister, as you were explaining, were at boarding school together. Yes. Where was Olga living? So she then came to live in Bulawayo with the San Francis of Assisi nuns. They were Irish nuns. So she was living in a home then because was too hard. My mum was a single mum, no welfare, and it was too hard for her to find work and look after my sister and the two of us. So she was better off because she couldn't walk or talk and she had to be fed. And What kind of yeah. care did she get there? What were the sisters oh, like? They were just beautiful. It was a home in those days, specially designed for people with disability, had these most beautiful murals on the wall as my memory that still captures me of animals because it was St. Francis's home and he loved animals. And, you know, even though I'm a good Jewish girl, I've had the secret love for St. Francis <laughs> ever since. Those nuns got you in the end, yes, Francesca. they did. They did. <laughs> what news did your family get, though, about Olga when, when she yes. was nine? Yes. So she was in the home and we, my mum and my, me and my sister were living in an uh, like a little ground floor duplex in Bulawayo, and she died. So she had a congenital heart defect, which is common often with Down syndrome, but it's much better treated now. But in those days, you died quite suddenly. From was it. was that a shock for you? It was a shock, and 
I don't think my sister and I really completely understood it. We didn't go to the funeral because, unfortunately, they didn't. Children in those days were kept away from death. So that was. It, I just remember people being in the house and my mum crying, and and that we no longer went to the home to visit my sister. As a teenager, though, you did start going back to that St Francis of Assisi home. Why? Well, I I became very active in the Red Cross as when I was in high school. So I did all my studies to be a Red Cross worker, you know, learning how to bandage and do first aid. And and so what I'd do during the school holidays is I'd dress up in my white Red Cross uniform and I'd go and work at the home during the school holidays every day. What, what sort of work did you do? Well, I looked after the other children, so I'd read to them, I'd play with them, I'd help the nuns bathe and feed them. Whatever they, the nuns wanted me to do, I would do. Take is, the ones out for walks in their wheelchairs and prams. Is this where the, the decision to become a social worker was, was made in a sense, do you think? I think so. I think, I think my Red Cross work um, then led me, because part of my Red Cross work was actually also getting, raising money to make up parcels that we took into the townships, living parcels. It's a bit paternalistic for me. I didn't, I'm not, you know, even as a teenager, I questioned that. I'd rather have people have jobs and they can pay for their own things. But at least it was some comfort. And so I think... That was the start. Being my Red Cross work, then working in the in the in the home with children, and yeah, then I went on to be a social worker. Do you think you were were consciously taking your mother's work as a model back then? I mean, it's common Def- for teenagers yeah. to rebel against their parents. Oh, I did rebel, but more more because I was I had to go back to boarding school for my last year of high school, and I rebelled with her against that but I still had to go back. But anyway, but in other ways, she was an example to me. I really feel I followed in her footsteps. I th- I, we both have the service gene. <laughs> and so. Well, when you were still a, a young teenager, I suppose this might have been another way you were rebelling against her. You met the man who would go yes. on to become your husband. Yes. When you decided to get married, you drove together to South Africa to yes. see your father, who you hadn't seen now in many years. Yeah, nearly 10 years. What was the, the thinking or what was the reason for well, doing that? Well, the reason for that is my mother was had custody of us, but my father was still my legal guardian. And because I married at 19, I turned 20 about a week later, I had to get his permission. He had to sign the marriage licence. So my ex-husband and I drove from we were living in Salisbury at that time, which is now Harare. We drove to South Africa and met him at a cafe. What was going through your mind, your body on on the lead oh, up to that? I, I was very nervous and I think he was very nervous because I could smell the alcohol on him again. On, on your father. Yeah, when I greeted him. I had inside of me a lot of anger and um and hurt. And sadness, all all mixed up, and but I just held it together somehow. And I think having my ex-husband there helped because he engaged my father in conversation. And so that was the last time I ever saw him. He signed the marriage license, 
and then I never saw him again. Your husband was a New Zealander and after some more years together in different parts of Africa, you emigrated to New Zealand and then came to Australia with your young sons. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in Brisbane, you became a social worker at a hospital. What what was your job? What was the extent of your role? Okay, so it was a big job. So my first job, well, my very first job in Australia was at Gladesville Psychiatric Hospital in Sydney. But then my job here in Brisbane was at Prince Charles Hospital and I was the sole social worker for 232 nursing home beds attached to Prince Charles Hospital. They had those demountables which were left from the war. And I worked in outpatients with a neurologist to assess people uh, in outpatients who had dementia. So dementia is the umbrella term and there were many kinds of dementia under that, Alzheimer's and vascular dementia being two of them. And I felt very inadequate as a social worker because there were no services in the community at all. So people were coming prematurely into the nursing home. And so I set up the first carer support group. So this was back in the, the 1980s, wasn't yes, it, Francesca? Yes, and, mid-1980s. And so yeah. what, how, what was the hospital like? If, if someone was put into hospital because they had Alzheimer's, Well, they came the into the nursing home. They didn't actually, unless there was something medically also wrong. Sometimes they would go into the main wards, but then they would, they'd come into the nursing home because the families could no longer cope. So I would, as a social worker, I always uh, would help the the new resident, we call them. They were still called patients in those days, but now you'd call them residents. I would help the patients settle in and I'd work with the family to help them adjust because there's often a lot of guilt. But I would work with the... There was one man in particular that I worked with who was quite young. He was a bit younger than some of the other uh, residents there. And, yeah, so, you know, their long-term memory was really well. It's good. The short-term memory is what goes. So I would play cards because he loved to play cards. So I had to learn how to play rummy. I didn't know. It wasn't a game <laughs> I'd been brought up with in, in Africa. So I learned how to play it when I was in the nursing home. And then I would just play with him because he loved shuffling the cards, even though he couldn't remember how to play the game properly. It was just a way to connect and for him to feel more at home and have some activity. How did you and the other staff try to make the living quarters feel more like a home and less like a a nursing centre or a medical place? Yeah, so I set up this group called the C7 Extended Family and so we were able to lobby the board, the hospital board, to get better conditions and make it more homely. So a lot of the families made curtains for the windows I would ha- we'd have barbecues at least once a month where the family came and had barbecues with a person. We were able to get a little dunny in the backyard because sometimes people couldn't get to the toilet on time, so the men particularly liked using the dunny. We had chickens. I got permission to have chickens. And then people would go and collect the eggs and then we would make pikelets from the eggs. And... Yeah, it was just, I used to run and do a lot of group work with the occupational therapist. It must have been transformative for those people and their families. I mean, I think how how incredibly challenging and and painful it can be to have a loved one with Alzheimer's or dementia now. But 
what were families telling you, confiding in you about the challenges of caring for a loved one? Well, there was nothing in the community. There were no services. A lot of the daycare centres wouldn't take people with dementia because they didn't have the staff, they didn't know how to care for them. So I set up the very first dementia-specific daycare centre in Brisbane and then at Miami on the Gold Coast, and I got other organisations like Blue Care to set up daycare centres. And what did that allow, those daycare centres? that, That allowed for specifically designed and particular specific programs for people with dementia. So the staff were trained on how to care for the person with dementia, how to provide support to the family and the different activities. You also were involved in caring for AIDS patients back in the 80s as well. Yes, And and tell me how how that became something that you were doing. Yeah, I was working then. I became director of the social work department at Princess Alexandra Hospital. It was a big job because it was a 1,200-bed hospital and I had to provide, make sure there was a social work service. So there were all these different departments. I set up a structure because there hadn't been any structure, like in geriatric, psychiatric, spinal, immunology. So I actually had a workload in the immunology ward with Professor Ian Fraser and Professor Mike Whitby. So I made sure that the admission and discharge procedures because they weren't being followed prop well they weren't any it's really the way to say it and I was seeing people in the corridors in the emergency department and so I inquired why they were there and people were very fearful in those days about AIDS. And, and so people, patients with AIDS were being kept yes, in corridors rather yes. than brought into yep. rooms. That's right. And then they went up into the immunology ward where you'd have to gown up and mask up and glove. And So I just made sure there were proper procedures and I did a lot of education with Mike Whitby and Professor Ian Fraser and Peter North was the social worker at the uni. And so we all used to educate the public and the staff in the hospital. What do you remember about those young men? I imagine they were mainly young men who were coming They were mainly young men and in those days we didn't have the drugs so they only lived for three years. So I went to many funerals but I became very close. I became very close and there was one man who was a composer and had received a letter from Kiria Takanawa who he composed for and he would show that to me and, and the day he died, he asked to be remembered to me. Hmm. Maybe you were a bit of a Regina to them. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> While you were working in, in this field of, of different sorts of care in these settings in Australia, Francesca, what kind of work was your mum doing in Africa? So she she was amazing. So she moved to Lusaka, Zambia. It was and she set up the Consumers Association. and She shop- was unstoppable. I know, <laughs> totally. And, well, because people were being exploited and there was a war on with Zimbabwe at the time and so they were being overcharged for staple foods and so she um, she published... She said, this isn't right. She said, this isn't <laughs> right. So she published a magazine called Shopping News and at one point uh, they became certified by the government and she took various shops to court for overcharging. 
Unbelievable. And did that have uh, the yes. effect that she wanted, yes. that changed yes. things? Yes, it did. She, though, had her own health issue when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Did that make her downscale her organising? No. no. She was having chemotherapy and still having meetings around her bed. Her bedroom became her office. And, yes, I went I went to look after her and just look at what care she was having while I was living here in Brisbane. So I only had five weeks there, but one day I was, um, you know, I was caring for her. She didn't want to face initially that she had the cancer, but I would make her bed every morning and would find all these wet tissues mm. and the pillow soaked. But one day I answered the phone and this is in her hospital. No, bed. this was in the at home. At home, mm-hmm. at home. so she, you know she was she was re- returning from chemotherapy and she was in bed and the phone rang and I answered it and it was President Kawunda, <laughs> the president of, of Zambia, the president of Zambia mom. ringing my mum <laughs> because she had taken him on when she first went to Lusaka. She went to Parliament House. And when he was doing a press conference and asked him why there wasn't a consumer association in Zambia, and he said, well, madam, if you want to, go ahead and start it. You can even start it tomorrow. So that's what she did. And so he admired her. And he rang, he heard she'd had cancer and that she was having treatment. And he rang to find out how she was. And it was, (laughs) it it made her day. (laughs) Never know who would be on the other end of that exactly. line. Never. In terms of that consumer work, this was a, a time when multinationals were were selling particularly milk yes, products. That's right. In Africa, which was having a devastating effect on children's yep. nutrition. Yep. What role did your mum take in the campaign well, she, against that? Yeah, she started the mobile clinic with some French nuns because Nestlé were promoting bottle feeding, and they didn't have. They couldn't sanitise the bottles and and the water had bugs in it and they didn't realise they needed to boil the water and they used less formula because it was less costly. So the babies weren't thriving and they were, they, they were becoming very ill. So she set up with these French nuns mobile clinics and they went into the townships and rural areas to teach the woman to continue breastfeeding and not to buy bottled milk. And WHO eventually took it on as well. But she started it before WHO took it on. I understand why the president was ringing her number, yes. Francesca. <laughs> as her health deteriorated, where did she, where did she end up staying? Yes, unfortunately, she, she didn't stay in Zambia. She didn't have enough of a support network. So she went to live with my sister in Durban. In South Africa. In South Africa, and that's where she died. Were you able to go to her funeral? No, I didn't. I I went and ke- I knew when I left that would be the last time I saw her. Yeah. You did go back to South Africa in 2016, the first time you'd returned in, in how many years? Nearly 27 years. What was that like arriving? Well, well... It was beautiful because it's such a beautiful country, you know. Australia and South Africa were joined during the before the Guarana time. So it's beautiful, beautiful place. And I loved being with the African people again. Um, it was 
but I had a lot of ghosts to face. And so I cried every day I was there when I spoke about my mum. But I went with 40 pages of a memoir she'd started and hadn't finished, and I interviewed trade unionists that followed her in her work and some of the freedom fighters that were involved, particularly Dennis Goldberg with the ANC. And did they give you a different picture of your mother or did it just kind of well, it chime conf- with what you knew? It confirmed all her work. Yeah, it confirmed. It was like being a detective. I was checking out all the facts and, and, and things she'd done and I was able to confirm all the things she'd done. Did it give you a different appreciation for the juggle or the struggle might be a better word that she had between being this activist and being a mother. Yes, yeah, I'm very admiring of her, but it's also hard to be a daughter of an activist because I sometimes think my sister and I, I think my sister felt it more than I did, not having the mothering we would have liked to have had, but I admire her immensely. And I do know the juggle because I've been in my own way, very active and also had a family. So someone misses out somewhere. I mean, we have to be honest about it. You've mentioned a few times, Francesca, the service gene. Yes. What, what do you, that's part came out of a conversation you had when you were in, in South Africa. It what was, does it mean? Well, I had that with Dennis Goldberg and he said to me, Francesca, do you think that the trade unionists and freedom fighters and humanitarian workers have the service gene? And I said, yes, I do. Because there are some people who are very drawn to work, even in the most difficult circumstances and conditions, and who have to juggle and their family life as well as their working life. Your mother never got to meet your sons, no. her grandsons, You're a grandmother, though, and you spend a lot of time around your grandchildren. How did you try to be? What kind of figure did you want to be in their lives? Well, I I wanted them to have someone who loved them unconditionally, even spoiled them a bit, and uh, that someone they could... I'm not into so much giving things, but I was more into giving them experiences. So I loved giving them different kinds of experiences, like meeting different people I would always invite into my home where they could meet different people or I'd take them to meet a bush poet or I'd take them to stay on a farm where they could feed animals or water my veggies or meet the creatures in my garden. Yeah, so it was really important I could give them unconditional love and and as well, they both, all of them love reading, so I was... That's one of the favourites is giving them books and talking about books with them. And you have this little boab boab tree not too far from your front door. That's what other right. what other trees are in your garden oh. that give you some of that some of that comfort that trees sound like they've given you right from the earliest days? Yes, yes. so I have these beautiful eucalyptus Australian trees. So in the side garden I have a male tree that's very straight and tall. And I often stand with my back against him and get advice and and counsel um, and ask questions and I always get an answer somehow. And when I've let my mind work against me, it puts me straight. And then in the front garden, I've got this beautiful female tree, which is a fork tree, and I have this native orchid growing just in, in the cleft of the tree. And then I would hug her and just nestle my 
nestle my head in in these beautiful orchids and she gives me comfort too so different kind i've got so she's the female tree and he's the male tree and if i lie on the grass and i look up at the sky you can see the finger leaf tips of the male tree and the female tree touching just slightly and lightly and um it's such comfort and nurturing and strength gives me strength and helps me to feel grounded and rooted in the earth well thank you so much for for telling us about your mum and about your trees thank you for being my guest on conversations thank you sarah Francesca Jordan was my guest today, and that's Francesca with a K, if you're Googling her name. And the name of Francesca's memoir is Under the Boa, Boa Tree. We'll have all the details, as always, on the Conversations website. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.